we're going to talk about uh, the relationship between genetics and language, and you'll see, I think, I, I hope, some of the themes emerging from all of the other talks in ours. So it's clear that humans are not like other creatures, especially in two areas. One is the importance of culture. The second is the importance of language, so you might argue the two are the same. And this tremendous variation in behavioral norms across groups, as illustrated in the picture. Um, so Aristotle noticed, noted memorably many years ago, ho anthropos fuse politikon zoon, which translates into English as man is by nature a social animal. Politikon here means social, not political. And I've taken uh, the definition of culture uh, from E.B. Tyler, who is regarded widely as one of the founders, if not the founder, of cultural anthropology. So it's really important to notice that though there are other creatures that have some form of culture, humans are, the, the diversity of culture in humans is just tremendous. Um, this is from a, one of my kids' favorite websites called Hats of Meat, if you're interested. It's been around for a very long time. Um, now the same is true not just of cultural diversity, but of language diversity. So just like every human community has a culture, every community has, a, has its own language as well. And um, despite what you may have heard from some well-known linguists, at least on the surface, languages differ from one another much more than they resemble one another. We could argue about that for a long time, but as I say, at least on the surface that is true. So one question you might ask is whether this linguistic diversity, this great diversity among languages, is due to genetic diversity. We know that there is some connection between the human ability to acquire a language and at least one gene, and that's FOXP2. And FOXP2, when the human variant was first discovered, people thought it was the gene for language. People have, of course, now, in the 20 years since, they've discovered that, that FOXP2 has 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 to do with lots of aspects of human behavior, but it is still true that it has something to do with language. Uh, it is also true uh, that genetic differences between individuals within a community do correlate with linguistic abilities. And a lot of this work was done by Karen Stromswald in her uh, work uh, looking, at, looking at twins. So question is, if you look at population-level genetic differences, are they related in any way to linguistic differences between these populations? This is the kind of thing um, that Greg Ray talked about when he talked about the notion that you have a gene and then you have a trait, right? So the question is, is there a genetic difference that, that manifests itself in a linguistic difference. And there's one study, one suggestive study, that suggests that, yeah, there, there may be something there, and that has to do with what we call tone languages. 
So tone languages are languages like Chinese. Now, every language makes use of tone. If you don't make use of tone, you sound like Hal the computer from, from the Space Odyssey. So in all languages, people use tone as a kind of a speech melody. But in tone languages, individual words can be distinguished in terms of their pitch. And I'm not going to try and show that to you because I'm really terrible at it, in part maybe because of my genetics. But uh, Chinese is the standard example where in Mandarin Chinese you have four tones and you can get the same syllable ma with each of the four tones. And in one case it means mother and in another case it means horse, etc., etc. Interestingly, these tone languages are concentrated in Africa, East Asia, and the Americas. So here is a map uh, from the World Atlas of Language Structures, which is a, a, a wonderful resource, showing you uh, those red dots are what we call complex tone languages, and we don't need to worry about exactly what that means. But you'll see that they're all concentrated in certain areas. Uh, somebody suggested to me that it might have something to do with climate, because uh, a lot of them are around the equator. But as you'll see, that, it, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's, it seems to be more genetic. All right, now how do you get a tone language? Very briefly, the way you get a tone language is by losing a consonant distinction. So if I say s and I say z, you can hear that s has a much higher frequency than z. So consonants just inherently have differences in their frequency. And if you lose the distinction between the consonants, that distinction can migrate onto the vowel preceding them. And that's basically how you get tones. And we know that this is true. Uh, this is called tonogenesis. So the question is, well, does, why doesn't that happen all the time? So, for example, German and Russian don't distinguish final consonants in terms of like s and z. Only s occurs at the end of a word. So what ha happens? The answer, uh, in, and this is somewhat speculative, but the answer is that this may have to do with people's ability to actually make these tone distinctions, to, to hear those tone distinctions, and that that may have to do with genetics, and in particular with certain alleles of two brain size genes, ASPM and microcephalin. And the idea is that these conservative alleles predispose people to actually encode these finer distinctions. And here is uh, the, the, um, the graph that, that attempts to, uh, to show you that. And if you look at the, the lower corner there, you'll see all of those little white squares concentrated. Those little white squares are the tone languages. And they're also the area where people have the lowest frequency of the adaptive haplogroups of ASPM and microcephalin. So those are the conservative, those are the genetically conservative populations. So the idea is that there's a correlation between the whether you have a tone language and whether you are genetically conservative with respect to these two genes. Um, and that's an example, as I said, of a genetic difference that seems to be correlated directly with a cultural trait, in this case, the, the development of a tone language. I'm going to shift now and talk about this gene culture 
feedback mechanism. And now I'm going to look at sign languages, and we're going to look at the possibility that, that, that genetics and culture feed each other in the development of sign languages. So everybody knows that language is more than speech. It's really impossible, unless you are Prince Charles or Queen Elizabeth, to speak without gesturing. Um, everybody uses what we call co-speech gestures. Everybody points. When I say this, I can't say this without pointing to this. Uh, I can't say that without pointing to that. So even what we call spoken language really is, is involves both speech and gesture. And what has been discovered over in fairly recent times is that any people who don't have speech will develop a sign language that has its origins in the gesture component of language. So question. That's the question. What is the relationship between genetics and culture in the emergence and persistence of a sign language? So some very, very simple facts for those of you who may not be familiar with this. Most deafness is non-syndromic, which means that there's really nothing else that's wrong with these people other than that they are deaf. The two major genetic types of deafness are dominant and recessive, and most, at least about three-quarters of cases of genetic deafness are due to, uh, to a recessive genetic condition. All right. People hoped, I would say even up to 10 years ago, that they would find the gene for recessive deafness. That is not true. There is, not, there is no one gene for recessive deafness. There are many genes that have been identified, um, at, at least 120 different genes that have been identified as uh, gene, recessive genes for, uh, for non-syndromic deafness. But basically, they all have the same result, which is that people are born deaf. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk very briefly about a theory that Professor Feldman and his colleague developed about in a series of, of articles about 20 years ago uh, about genetics and deafness. And what they were interested in is why does a sign language persist? What are the conditions under which a sign language would persist? So they made the following assumptions. This is purely theoretical work. Uh, they made the following assumptions. First of all, they were only interested in recessive hereditary deafness. Uh, they were interested in um, an environment in which transmission of a language occurred from parents to children. And they concluded that a sign language could persist over many generations under certain favorable conditions, in theory. And these were the favorable conditions that they identified in theory. One is a greater frequency of the gene for deafness. Second, which is very interesting, is a greater proportion of hearing people acquiring the sign language. A greater proportion of carriers marrying each other, what we call deaf-deaf marriage. And then finally, that it was... It, it, that the gene, that the language, the sign language was more likely to survive if children learned the sign language from other family members besides their parents. So that's the theory, which, as I say, dates from about 20 years ago. Now we're going to look at some facts. In other words, what actually happens? 
and what has happened. The first set of facts has to do with American Sign Language. And here it is very clear in a series of studies done over the last five years or so that, as we say here, marriage matters. So this is actually picking up on uh, what Professor Feldman was talking about in terms of uh, what we call assortative mating. In other words, people selectively marrying certain people. So this is American Sign Language. Here it is very clear, and it makes sense, that the establishment of schools for the deaf increased the fitness of deaf individuals by providing them with a community and a language. In other words... And, and it's not just schools that we're talking about. Uh, if you've read any of Carol's work on deaf culture, you know that there were deaf clubs that were established. There was an entire deaf community that emerged in this country and elsewhere um, in, in Western Europe centered around deafness. And what, these, what these, these schools and clubs did was they provided people, deaf people, with an opportunity to meet if they met that provided them with an opportunity to marry each other, and that is what happened. In fact, there's been a dramatic increase in deaf-deaf marriages in Western countries over the last century, and not surprisingly, the fertility rate of these marriages is about the same as the fertility rate of hearing marriages. Most interestingly, the prevalence of the, 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 the most common recessive gene for deafness has increased fairly dramatically in the last 60 years. And so that really, that, that, that's a very nice uh, factual demonstration that Feldman and Aoki were on the right track. I mean, they had a theory, and this is a demonstration that, that this really works in practice. Okay, I'm going to shift from American Sign Language to a very, very different environment, and that's the environment in which we work. And these are what we call village sign languages. This is a not very good photo of the village where we happen to work. And over the last 10 years or so, people have discovered, people knew about these villages, but really people have begun to work in villages which uh, that that where sign languages seem to be uh, prevalent. All right, there are two types of sign languages. Very briefly, there are sign languages like American Sign Language. We, this is a term that we've used, we call them deaf community sign languages. And those are communities where deaf people come together. Uh, either through a school or through a club or whatever. And they are there together because they're deaf. But, of course, genetically, there is no single underlying reason for their deafness. It's simply the phenotype of the deafness that is bringing these people together. Then there are village sign languages. Village sign languages emerge for purely genetic reasons in communities that are, for whatever reason, socially self-contained. And... What happens is that the, for the, because of their social self-containment, that provides a, 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 a climate that is ripe for the type of genetic deafness that we're talking about. 
Um, here are some examples. Uh, the only real example in this country is uh, of a village sign language is Martha's Vineyard sign language, which was used in Martha's Vineyard probably from about the time of the founding of the community in the 1650s till around 1900, and is the subject of a wonderful book uh, called Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language by Nora Gross that I recommend highly. Um, and then there are other communities that are really distributed all around the world that have been identified. I'm sure there are more such communities, but these are the communities that people know of. Uh, this is just a very brief sample of those are the, the communities for which we have some idea of what the, the genetic basis of the deafness is. In Asayad, uh, it is very clearly DFNB1, Connexin 26, uh, and these other communities there's a, a differ uh, in terms of, of what the genetics of the uh, of, of the deafness is in those sign languages. The village where we work is called Isayad. It's in the Negev Desert in Israel. We know the history of the village. We have a complete genetic profile of that village. Well, very briefly, these are the genetic conditions of the deafness in this village. The social conditions are exactly what you expect, that it is closed, a practice of consanguineous marriage, uh, deaf men and women marry within the village, and there was very little schooling within the village. So it is clear that what uh, Professor Feldman and Aoki predicted is exactly true, that if you have recessive deafness and you have a contained community, you will sustain, you will develop and sustain a sign language. Thank you.